Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Ben? Yes. What is that noise? Uh, that noise is my under the desk elliptical trainer. You're what now? I have this like little foot pedal elliptical exercise machine that sits under my desk that I can use. Uh, allow me to paint a picture for our listeners right now who are deprived. <laughs> so imagine Ben on the screen and he's just bobbling a little bit. And there's nothing that comes to mind. You're like, is, is it an earthquake? Is it a tremor? Because the motion associated with under the desk elliptical machines is not like a natural one. What Susan means is that it is almost imperceptible and it's totally unobtrusive, it's so but it's unnerving. Ben, this has become a, a point of lawfare contention and now i'm convinced ben is doing it not for the health benefits but to troll me personally well i i will will say though i am doing it chiefly for the health benefits the fact that it has the effect of trolling susan is an unexpected benefit and so i encourage any rational security listeners to tweet at susan pictures of themselves bobbing up and down as they use exercise mm-hmm. equipment. Let's, let's spread this far and wide. We'll make it a thing. <laughs> Just go jog. Hello and welcome to Rational Security, the vaccines are the new masks edition. I'm Shane Harris. I am not exercising in my booth Sitting right perfectly now. still. I'm not exercising. It's perfectly still. I'm not bobbing up and down. You don't hear the, because now that we're recording, I stopped. Susan, what if I just like sit here and like weirdly like It would be the same thing. Noise. I'd be is looking at you and I'd be weird? like, what? So the real <laughs> source of this is that he did it for like two weeks without explaining it to anyone what was going on. And so for like a week, Wait, I was what? like. Did no one ask? No one asked. Because it seemed rude to be like, Ben, are you like, do you have a tremor? I like, asked what's right happening away. to you? <laughs> And then finally, I think Quinta was just like, what the, I have to ask, what the hell is with the bobbing? And Ben was like, oh, I have this wow. under desk elliptical machine. This is such a like sociological experiment. Like, you know, I asked within the first 10 seconds of long enough, I'm like, what are you doing? Are you on a treadmill? Are you on a bike? <laughs> the reactions to it are so bifurcated. There are the people like Susan and Quinta who find it really unnerving Jack Goldsmith asked me about it, and I said, oh, it's an under-the-desk elliptical. And he's like, oh, I'm ordering Great. one of those right now. Wow. And he goes he goes and does so, and he's in love with it. Um, like, people have these radically different reactions to it. And Tammy's not here this week, so presumably she just packed her stuff and left. <laughs> I'm not trying to make a statement with it. I'm just trying to burn some extra calories. Wow. People can think for the they For want. the additional context, though, Ben also works out constantly. So the idea that, like, 
he really needs to squeeze in a little bit more exercise. It just, it adds a, an extra. Hey man, it's a lifestyle. Well, we are here in the uh, remote jungle fitness studio, apparently. For the jazzercise edition of Rational Security. Everybody on your feet. No, we're, we've got the, the putting the jungle in Jungle Studio. We have like a tropical downpour going on outside. Yeah, that's true. And it's, it's, you know, it's jungle steam Oof. emerging from the streets. It's Oof. great. God, it's just it is like a Zumba class or something. Now I don't know about this, but uh, anyway, I'm here with my good friends Ben Wittes and Susan Hennessey. Hi, guys. Hey. Tammy is away, although I'm sure she'd have a lot to say about what's going on under the desk. She is on vacation. On vacation, she got she had to take a vacation to get away from that washing machine or whatever is under your desk. It does kind of sound like like you're like whoosh, on a little whoosh, spin whoosh, cycle. Whoosh. Like I'm picturing you like. Like you like to put some woolite in there and doing your delicates. That's what's happening. That's exactly what's happening. That's exactly what's happening. Oh I'm boy! Foot powering a wash cycle. <laughs> this is really what people <laughs> tuned in for. On the podcast this week, the debate heats up over vaccine passports. Google exposes a hacking operation that turns out to have been a government counterterrorism mission. Hate when that happens. And oops. The, oops, sorry. <laughs> and the World Health Organization's director says his agency needs to further investigate whether the coronavirus outbreak began in a lab in China. Let us start with vaccine passports. Um, I feel like we could file this under just next predictable front in the culture war. Um, the Biden administration is reportedly developing guidelines uh, essentially for ways that businesses, possibly some transportation systems, i.e. airlines, um, would be able to accept or use some kind of credential, I guess we could say, that would prove that an individual has gone through his or her full dose of coronavirus vaccines, whichever one you got, and that basically now you are sort of safe to re-enter society. There is a lot of Republican pushback to this. Most people basically framing this as some kind of apocalyptic, uh, you know, sign of the devil, as Marjorie Taylor Greene, I think she put it, Biden's mark of the beast, which I thought that honor belonged to his dog. I just want to say that uh, she and Naomi Wolf oh, are right. are each other's uh, animating spirits on this. Which is crazy, by the way. Which is freaking crazy. Okay. Naomi Wolf was on Fox News saying that the vaccine passport was literally the end of liberty in America. I think they called it communism. Wow. It's very hard to sort of track the full. There's a lot it's going bad, on. Though, There's guys. a lot of corporate communism. There's yeah, all bad. the feels on the passport. So I'm, I'll lay my cards on the table. This I will admit, I'm actually, so I'm 90-10 on this, okay? Like 90% of me thinks very good, sensible, obvious idea that provides a huge measure of security and assurances for individuals and businesses. It is, I think, clearly in the interest of public health. I don't think it is even close to government coercion. And yet there is that 10% of me that feels a little creeped out and that this is kind of like the your papers, please. Uh, and that what worries me is that we're creating some kind of bifurcated classes of people, the clean and the unclean. Although I will admit that is, I think, more a reflex than a genuine concern on my part, which is why I say 90-10. So, Susan, let's start with the law on this. First, do companies have a right to demand proof of vaccination in exchange for service? And does the government have a right to require vaccination 
to engage in certain activities, let's say air travel, which is one that the U.S. government regulates. Yeah, so there's a ton of levels to this, legally speaking. And using the term vaccine passports, I think, really confuses the issue. Because what we're really talking about here, when we're talking about sort of the federal government's involvement, the policy proposals on the table are not about anything that's sort of compulsory, but instead if there is going to be a system, should the federal government be involved in credentialing it or setting it up rather than sort of allowing a private system to develop, right? So if people are going to be um, making decisions or relying on this information, how can the federal government regularize that and impose protections? Um, There are contexts in which the federal government can require vaccinations and state governments can require vaccinations. So um, people have to show vaccinations to travel internationally, people who attend or work, for example, at public schools, public hospitals, um, they have to to show, uh, you know, particular vaccinations, right? So there are plenty of contexts in which people are required to have vaccinations in order to participate in certain things. Uh, And then private uh, companies sort of have the right uh, to set the terms of uh, sort of service uh, for their clients, who, who, they're, who they're allowing to enter their facilities, et cetera, as long as it's consistent with things like the Americans with Disabilities Act, all, all sorts of other, uh, other issues. But there's a lot of complicating factors here. And I think we're in a really unfortunate moment in which vaccine passports or documentations could solve sort of a, an immediate sort of public health problem. How do we engage in this sort of secure, gradual reopening process? There are some good reasons to be concerned about it and some good complications, including the fact that we are still under a period of emergency use authorization, which changes the ability. For example, the U.S. military is not, you know, ordinarily the military has to take vaccinations. They don't. There are special rules for sort of emergency use authorization periods. Um, There's there's privacy concerns. There's there's discriminatory concerns. So there's lots of good reasons, at least to sort of want to be cautious in thinking through the policies. Then there's really dumb objections, like it's the end of liberty and it's communist and right and 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 reasons that are really driven by sort of vaccine hesitancy and the idea that the culture wars have broken down to sort of being pro and anti-coronavirus at this point. And so I think once again, we're in this really unfortunate place in which this is a complicated question. This isn't something that we should just say, this is a completely obvious solution. We should absolutely allow this to happen. Um, We should be thoughtful about, you know, forgeries. We should be thoughtful about uh, enforcement. Are people allowed to use this in making employment decisions? There are individuals who cannot be vaccinated for legitimate reasons. What happens to those people? Are we comfortable saying there's a group of people who are not, they're voluntarily not getting vaccinated. they, They actually can't be vaccinated are they, can they be excluded from certain things? Can you make hiring decisions? Can you make individual hiring decisions? This is a really complicated area. And instead, we're having the dumbest possible version of this conversation sort of once again. And that's before we even like start to touch on the, the legal complications of it. Yeah, so I agree with that. I want to try to get you over the 10% in the 90-10, which is... It is totally inevitable that we're going to have something like this. And the reason we're going to have something like this is that individual people are under no obligation to socialize with or do business with other individual people. This is not a, you know, a protected category 
against discrimination. And so think about, you know, a small shop that says, hey, we want a safe environment for ourselves and our customers. These vaccines are only 90% effective, which means if there are people floridly expressing a lot of virus, you know, somebody's going to get sick in our premises. And so uh, the first question is, do, does that small business have a right to say, we're not knowingly going to serve people with, uh, who are expressing the coronavirus? And the answer to that question is, yes, they have the right to do that. The second question is, given that they have the right to do that, is some mechanism going to develop wherein we engage or we facilitate that information flow? And the answer to that question is yes, as well. And the evidence of that is that when I went to get my vaccine the other day, uh, this vaccine passport was given to me, which is to say a COVID-19 vaccination record card from the CDC. And if anybody wants to say, hey, Wittes, do you have your vaccine passport? We can call it a, you can call it whatever you want, right? But it is, in fact, proof of vaccination, albeit in Susan's framework, one that would be relatively easy to forge. I can produce that. Now, to the people who say, wait a minute, there's a civil liberties issue here. Imagine that you are the company Tinder and you are facilitating lots of people to get together and make out and have sex. Is that what people are doing on Tinder? That is what people are doing on Tinder. They were just getting cups of coffee. Is it responsible of you to run a business in which you're knowingly, now granted, they have CDA 230 immunity and all that, but presumably want to provide a safe environment. Is it responsible to knowingly facilitate the unvaccinated people getting together when there's an option? And there's just enough, you know, flights are another example. There's just a million examples of stuff where, and some of them won't involve 230 liability, where, you know, you could have real liability questions arising if you're not checking this sort of thing. So the the safety market is there and you can decry it all you want, but there's going to be some mechanism is going to develop for us to say, hey, don't worry about me, I'm vaccinated. And by the way, that's good. And so I just I just want to say, like, should we do it, as Susan says, in a thoughtful, responsible way that takes into account things like, you know, discriminatory possibility, people who can't get vaccinated for one reason or another people? Yes, we should do all those things. But the alternative is it's not not having this. It's having it develop organically on its own in some ad hoc fashion that may be more rather than less unfair. I think you also just put your finger, I was just going to say, put your finger on the reason why it's going to happen, which is that there's a customer demand for it, right? Yeah. That there will be like, if you were a restaurant that has participates in whatever we want to call this system, it becomes a selling point for you that like, hey, we only allow vaccinated diners in our restaurant. And I promise you they will have bookings for weeks. Go back to my Tinder example. Well, that, if yes. Tinder does not impl- implement this uh, in some way, COVID safe Tinder will arise 
tomorrow well, and will, everyone will download it. Well, I, I will push back on this one. Now we're getting like very theoretical, but like, and, and Susan, you talk, but I wonder because there, in my mind, particularly as a gay man, there's always been this sense of like, if you had a way of communicating proof of your HIV status to someone through the form of a credential, would that be something that people would want? I.e., I was last tested on this date and it proves I'm negative. That never developed, I will say. Now, there's other mechanisms that developed, like, you know, people are on PrEP now or whatever and, you know, and the safe sex practices and all that. So maybe, you know, those things just sort of, you know, filled the market need. But, you know, I think it's going to be driven by the customers, but also by places of business that where people are afraid to go for fear of catching the virus. And to your point, maybe Tinder actually will be one of them. Yeah, I also think sort of that example, it it starts to reveal like the legal complexities here. So is it fraud to represent that you are vaccinated against COVID when you aren't? Is it assault, right? Sort of like that's the place in which I think sort of the original instinct is, you know, uh, the federal government should stay out of it. And maybe it's for the private sector, maybe it's for states. But I think whatever the reason why the federal government might be thinking about this is sort of, okay, how do we control this? How do we think about sort of questions of health privacy? And remember, this isn't that different from early, whenever early in sort of the, the, the outbreak of the pandemic, whenever we were talking about, you know, monitoring people's temperatures and do you have a little, you know, sort of, do you have a, a green thing to scan on your phone, which is something that um, in a number of Asian countries, they've used you know, really with a lot of success to sort of control the uh, control the spread of the pandemic, uh, right? So this is sort of, it's it's just the next evolution of, I think, a pretty longstanding uh, sort of debate. That's I, I do think the way to frame this is, or the, the, the way that we should be thinking about it is, so either, if we want to be responsible as a public health matter, either we have to operate on the assumption that everybody is potentially infected and infectious at all times, in which case everybody has to wear a mask, everybody has to stand six feet apart, we have to have ventilation, right? We have to sort of engage in all those protocols just on the basis of we don't know. And so the only way to, to operate is to, to impose these protections on everybody. Um, and that comes with, you know, economic costs, right? There, there's all kinds of, uh, you know, negative consequences, but the, the positive is that it's, it's relatively equal. Um, right? We just sort of, we make this assumption about everybody. The, the alternative choice and the only other alternative choice that we should really be considering is, do we want to begin to allow a system that allows certain people to essentially rebut that presumption and opt themselves out of the, the sort of the presumption, I am potentially infected and infectious, and instead say, no, 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 I'm in a category where you shouldn't make that assumption about me, and therefore we can interact or I can interact in a different way. And, and that will reduce some of those negative consequences of applying these sort of restrictions uh, very, very broadly, because we don't know, you know, sort of, we, we can't identify from the outset or you know, like physically, somebody walking into a store who might present a higher or lower risk. Um, the problem is, and, and if we were a rational society, we would be having the conversation on those two terms. It's not an easy debate, but like that's, those are sort of the, that's the way we should be thinking about it. Instead, we're a crazy country where there's a third thing, which is people who both object to presuming everybody is infected and infectious and don't make me wear a mask and it's my own choice and it's my body, right? And the government, you know, the everybody, everything should be opened and also object to vaccine passports. And so they're actually just taking a position that's like, pro spread of the virus. And that's where all these like, this is about freedom to do what I want. And so I think the question is, how do we have a public policy debate 
within those two, the two reasonable questions where all these really hard questions exist and these reasonable possibilities while excluding the crazy stuff. And I think what we're seeing a little bit right now is people who don't want to acknowledge some of the, the, the complexities and the difficult privacy and, and discriminatory questions because they don't want to give any quarter to sort of the crazies who are going to use it to basically say like, it's my right to cough in your face and, and like get COVID if I want to and give you COVID, which is an absurd and and uh, and really, really dangerous way to approach the virus that's going to harm all of us. And so I think that's the phenomenon we're seeing play out right now. Well, let's switch from talking about viruses of one kind to another. There's my segue. That's good. Sure. Nice. Well done. Computer viruses. You get it, people? We talk computer about viruses? computer viruses now. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, I'm really that. That's I mean, that's it. I'm done for the day. I can go home. OK, I am home. <laughs> Rational security has been brought to you by. Uh, so a really interesting story in MIT Technology Review building off of I guess this is really a story building off an earlier pair of blog posts by Google that had detailed the collection of uh, zero day vulnerabilities uh, that it had discovered hackers were using over a period of nine months back in early 2020. And to remind listeners, a zero-day vulnerability is a vulnerability in a piece of software technology that has not been discovered, and therefore a hacker can exploit freely uh, until it is patched. So they discovered a, a kind of a shitload of them, actually. Um, 11 powerful vulnerabilities in all MIT Technology Review reports, compromising devices running uh, iOS, Android, and Windows, so kind of the trifecta there, it turns out, as uh, MIT reports, that this operation was actually not a criminal hacker group, but was a Western government, they don't say which one, running a counterterrorism operation, presumably which was severely disrupted, if not shut down by the publicity that Google gave to these tools that said Western government was using. Uh, I think it's pretty clear from, I think, from the reporting that Google knows who the government is. Uh, and is not saying and, and also clearly not saying who the target uh, of this operation was. So, Ben, lots to unpack here. Let's talk with first principles, though. As a rule, should a company like Google or another company doing cybersecurity research expose or take steps to shut down presumably lawful national security operations? And we should say there's no indication that there was anything of of an unlawful nature going on in this operation that Google exposed. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. 
For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. So I think the first principle is almost always unanswerable in the abstract. And the reason is that, first of all, the facts matter a lot. So Western government engaged in a counterterrorism operation could mean everything from the U.S. operating against a, an ISIS live plot to do something really awful, which you really would not want Google interfering. It could also mean Turkey operating against, you know, Kurdish groups in uh, Iraq under the auspices of, of supposed counterterrorism, in which case I would say I don't really have a dog in that fight, you know. And you know, Western is a very broad term, and counterterrorism is a term that that can imply very acute, legitimate interests or uh, less acute and more political interests. The second thing is that I think Google should always err on the side of closing vulnerabilities when it discovers them. Its its fundamental obligation is to its customers. It is not a national security protective agency. Its job is to, you know, maximize cybersecurity. There are times when you want them to temper that with common sense. And there are, uh, for example, times when Google has gone to NSA and said, we need help from the Chinese. And there are times when NSA has gone to Google and says, we need your help with you know, X, Y, or Z. I think the default of the companies should reasonably be on the side of closing vulnerabilities when they discover them. On the other hand, one would hope that if it were a situation in which there is an exigent national security reason you're not operating, and, and there's no immediate reason to think some other actor is going to discover these vulnerabilities and you're creating a big general security environment by, uh, problem by not patching them, you would hope that under those circumstances they would be very cautious about what they're doing to a serious national security operation. Now, the one other thing I will say, since this is a pile of mush, is that this one seems to have been close enough to the line that it in, it divided people at Google and they, they did close these, thus screwing up the operation. And a team at Google was concerned about it and upset about it. And so I do think this is probably one of the cases that is pretty close to the line, whatever the line is. And so, you know, with but but I would say without knowing more, I don't know how one would evaluate whether Google chose rightly or wrongly here. Yes, I, I think it's it's really interesting just to see sort of how these debates are playing out um, and sort of and really the specific question, which um, I didn't sort of get a sense that there is a lot of controversy over whether or not Google or other companies should patch vulnerabilities, right, and sort of take efforts to disrupt. I think that's all things considered a relatively easy decision, actually, even for important intelligence 
purposes. Um, so sort of the, the primary one being that um, the intelligence community's argument in sort of the vulnerabilities equities process and when it's okay to, uh, you know, to retain a zero day vulnerability for operational use as opposed to disclosing it to be patched sort of for defensive purposes is essentially sort of disputing the notion of dual discovery as being a very common thing. Saying, look, you know, the intelligence agencies are spending millions and millions of dollars and sort of the like, you know, greatest minds of technology in the known universe to find these vulnerabilities. The idea that like every authoritarian government is happening upon them, like their potholes in the road is not really reasonable. And so we can sort of retain these and, and the risk of others discovering them and misusing them is not all that high. Um, there are others who really disagree with that, but that's kind of the position. Um, when we're in a moment like this, uh, there has been dual discovery. Somebody else found it. Somebody outside the intelligence community, outside this very, very controlled environment has been able to identify it. And so I think then you're in a world of sort of um, presumptively others can find and exploit it. And so, you know, maybe you would think about uh, requesting particular time delays or notification, right? So um, not dissimilar to how the media handles breaking big national security stories. Newspapers do have a policy of, in some cases, withholding particular details or delaying notification. So it's sort of reasonable questions there, but I think all things considered, I don't view that as really difficult. I think that the more interesting question is sort of this one of attribution um, and this notion, well, we now have these companies, either Google or sort of, you know, the, the companies that are contracted by them saying it was North Korea, it was the Russians sort of engaging in this nation state attribution and then not doing it when it's Western governments or they suspect it's Western governments. And additionally, holding back some of the details that might make it easier for people to identify. And I think that's a really interesting question, it kind of comes down to this idea of, I'm certainly of the view that Western governments in the United States are different because we're different. We're the good guys. We have oversight. We're like, you know, we're a, we're a democratic country. Um, uh, and so this is lawful uh, activity, whereas authoritarian regimes are the bad guys and they're doing this for bad purposes. And so we should treat them differently. That's not the, right? That's a, that's a controversial view, or at least not widely accepted to the idea that from the outside you could know what's a counterterrorism operation versus an espionage operation and who's actually involved right we've talked about um on this podcast uh former uh, you know partnerships with places like the uae right on counterterrorism operations and some of those countries that are partners for very limited counterterrorism purposes learning from those operations and using them for other purposes. And so the idea that like companies would, would be in a position where they're saying, well, for counterterrorism purposes, we're going to withhold this information, but not for espionage, right? Like, I don't even know how you would start to, to draw those lines unless you were doing it in this like really sort of ad hoc way. And, and I actually, I think for the first time from this article sort of got a sense that maybe they are doing it in an ad hoc way. They kind of engage in conversations and decided, Shane, I'm sort of curious as a journalist, like is my analogy to reporting sensitive national security facts after is this like a totally different thing? No, I think it's, I think there's a lot of similarities there and you're right that journalists do engage in I mean, a balancing test, for lack of a better term, where we go to government agencies whose in information will be implicated in, in publishing a story and say, essentially, how much is too much and, and, and what danger might we be causing? Now, I don't know what Google's calculus is 
I do wonder if it's something like a journalist, which is we err strongly on the side of publishing. And we set a very high bar for a government agency to meet when they're going to try and persuade us not to publish a story at all or not to publish some part of a story. Google may be looking at this like we feel like we have some kind of obligation to try and work here with the government in a way that a journalist simply wouldn't. We would be looking at this more like, you know, this is going to happen and, you know, you need to make a really strong case for why not. And, and, and you made a point, too, in your remarks, Susan, which about attribution, there's a fascinating other angle to that that this story reveals which is that the tradecraft that governments are using, government hackers are using, i.e. the way they write the code, is to very trained observers kind of giving them away, which there's actually a, a former senior U.S., I think important to note, intelligence official, quote in the piece, who says there are certain hallmarks in Western operations that are not present in other entities. You can see it translate down into the code. For anybody who watches the Bureau, by the way, in season five, there's a very interesting little discussion. There's a scene where they're like clearly telling who the hackers are based on the way they write. Right. This is a known thing. There are kind of fingerprints and techniques that are left behind. And it's called handwriting. Yeah. OK. So, yeah, right. You know, and it's not limited to this. Right, there's of a, course. You know, it, it shows up in in all kinds of tradecraft, certain Entities have certain styles right. and and you can identify their styles frequently. And so I point that out as a way of saying that to Susan's question about like, what are the dynamics that are in play here? You know, this must also be a big one because government hackers and Google security experts are basically the same. They're all trained in the same stuff. So they're operating in an environment where I suspect that a lot of these Google people kind of have a good sense much of the time, like, oh, yeah, this is, you know, this is American this is British. This is something else. I would I would suspect, given that there were eleven zero day vulnerabilities in here, in this case, that it was either the U.S. government or the Brits. Yeah, I think like um, you know, Kaspersky has long sort of identified right the Equation Group um, as somebody who they have attributed as being potentially NSA, and so we we already have sort of this this history of um, a little bit of nationalism in this space, and certain companies are willing to tell on other countries and not on their own, and sort of that dynamic. And I think people don't right they hear um, you know CrowdStrike. Has has found you know cozy bear and fancy bear. They don't realize like this also happens reportedly, allegedly to the United States as well. It's sort of this back and forth. But I do think this sort of this presumption of companies having sides, right, and sort of even being able to make that the determination of who they might you know sort of attribute to and why and where the obligations are. In, that that's where I think it gets really complicated and, and sort of thorny, especially like in, in the like the post-Snowden environment is just a whole different ballgame. It's also important to emphasize that to some degree, the international environment requires companies to have sides. So, you know, Google, which is based in the United States, is an American company. The mode of interaction between Google and American intelligence is by and large uh, one written in law, you know, i.e. 702 and, and accompanying statutes, in which the NSA presents a demand to Google. It doesn't generally go hack Google's stuff. And so, uh, you know, for Google to think of NSA, generally speaking, not as a security problem for Google, but as a legal 
set of issues for Google to manage is actually baked into the way Google is positioned relative to NSA. And that will lead to a more collaborative, cooperative relationship, you know, and to the extent it's adversarial, it's adversarial in court settings, you know, not in cyber spy versus spy kind of thing. And that's very different from, you know, the same entity's relationships with with other governments. I also think the story strongly implies, although it doesn't say that we're dealing with U.S. uh, intelligence here, I think you could also imagine it being Australian or British but it's the the implication of the story, given the magnitude of the operation and the anxiety at Google about blowing it, is that you're talking about NSA or some U.S. entity. Yeah, look, I, I think one feature we do have to take account into account is um, these companies have clients and customers all over the world. People all over the world use Google. And so um, the U.S. intelligence community um, has really relied on this. Don't worry. There are protections. There are, you know, there are legal regimes. There are oversights. If you are a U.S. person, you like you have nothing to fear from us. I, I think that there does need to be a recognition that that's not a particularly um, useful uh, sort of corporate messaging strategy whenever large parts of your customer base are not U.S. citizens that are are U.S. persons that are not entitled to those protections. And so just sort of interesting to see the the evolution on some of those questions over time. Well, speaking of viruses, speaking of viruses, let's speak of viruses again. Three viruses. It's all viruses. Is this the viral viral edition? It's a very viral. The all virus rational security, proving that when Tammy goes away, our exposure to viruses goes, all of us goes through the roof. I think she's the only, she's the last of us to not have a vaccine. Maybe we just vaccine passported her out of the podcast. But she is the last to be vaccinated, but our own inoculation against viruses, because without her, we are just all virus. Wow. Indeed. That's very deep. I did not realize we would get so time as a flat circle on the podcast today. Um, this week, a much anticipated, air quotes, <laughs> World Health Organization report on the origins of the coronavirus. I, I joke a bit about it because this report had been delayed a number of times. Uh, and even before it had come out, uh, no less than the White House National Security Advisor and the Secretary of State uh, had kind of rhetorically taken a big old poop on it. Do you like that? That happens. Saying basically that they were, had real questions about the integrity of the process. When the White House National Security Advisor says he has questions about the integrity of your process, you got a problem. Got some issues. Got some issues. So the report comes out, and no sooner does it come out than the Director General of the World Health Organization, and I will say what was to me a very surprising comment that I don't think uh, many people expected. I sure hadn't. Uh, said, first of all, the report concludes this expert team that we, you know, we basically sanctioned to go to China to gather information uh, from a not very forthcoming Chinese government, everyone agrees, concludes that probably the coronavirus SARS-CoV-2 developed in nature, which is to say that it transmitted from an animal, possibly to another animal, and then to humans. And that is then how the outbreak and the pandemic began. However, Uh, The theory, which I think has been pretty widely dismissed for a long time as unscientific and a bit of a crackpot theory, that the virus itself may have originated 
in a lab, the so-called lab leak theory, is one that needs to be further investigated, the director general said, noting that the team that was sent to Wuhan did not actually have the expertise to ascertain whether it came from the lab. Uh, We should note that they did meet with lab staff for a grand total of about three hours and pretty much took what they had to say about the possibility of a lab leak um, at face value. And it is treated in a couple of scant paragraphs in an otherwise pretty long and dense report. So the team itself is acknowledging we didn't even look at this very closely. It's fair to say that this theory, I think, has been pretty widely dismissed for a long time, not because there's no circumstantial evidence to back it up. There is some uh, to suggest that, that the virus could have accidentally, we should say, escaped from the lab, but rather because Donald Trump was chiefly one of the people promoting it, and a lot of his allies in Congress were. Uh, and it was, I think, seen as more of a political distraction and a way to deflect from his own handling of the pandemic than it was a serious scientific question. And a lot of people, uh, I think, regarded it as if Trump is saying it, it must be false. Um, but there were a lot of scientists, have been a lot of credible scientists out there saying, look, this needs another look. So, Susan, that to me is just really striking um, that suddenly it seems like there's now, you know, a few more ounces of credibility kind of put on the scale about this theory, which is not to say that it's true. And it very likely is not true, given the countervailing scientific evidence about a natural transmission. But that just strikes me as now we have to basically say you can't just dismiss this because Donald Trump said it. Yeah, so I... I think the way you describe it shows like the incredible difficulty of the position that scientists are in, which is essentially this is a theory that is highly, highly improbable. There are other theories that are far more probable. It was used as a sort of to fuel conspiracy theories that were sort of demonstrably false and used for political purposes, but it's not impossible. And so if you're a scientist, if you're a doctor, if you're the World Health Organization and you are investigating the origins of a virus, it's not reasonable for you to say we are not even going to look at or examine what is, however improbably, at least a theoretical possibility, because it might fuel these crazy conspiracy theories. And when you're faced with a situation like China, where they are not transparent, where they are not saying, look, this is a crazy conspiracy theory, come in, examine whatever you want to, talk to our scientists, take as much time as you need, sort of full access to satisfy yourselves that this is not the origins of this virus, as we've been telling you, right? Sort of allowing that transparency and instead of saying, yeah, yeah, come in and you can walk around for three hours and we'll let you talk to who we talk to. And you walk, whatever you sort of walk away from that and saying, look, we weren't really able to sort of dispositively say, right? We weren't able to conduct an investigation with real integrity. Um, What do you do with that? And how do you communicate to the public on this really important public health question? What was the origin of the virus? How are we going to prevent it moving forward and have credibility without spinning up, like without that statement being like being perceived as, oh, this is the World Health Organization saying like, hint, hint, nudge, nudge, we do think that it's it's likely. And so sort of the 
like the sensitivities of that messaging that ultimately I read those quotes as being about frustration with the Chinese government and saying, you didn't allow us to resolve these questions. And like, we aren't going to go beyond the record and we're going to say like, this remains open. And if you want to invite us back in so we can answer all of our, you know, really answer the questions, some scientific validity, then that's well and good. So I took that as more of an expression of frustration with that and less a, well, now we've looked into everything and actually maybe Donald Trump was right. Maybe it was this lab manufactured sort of virus that we remain in, in, in the world of like, yeah, like highly, highly improbable things happen sometimes. It, it could have happened. And it's not like any of the other possibilities have been dispositively proved. Like we found the bat, we found the animal and here it is. And we can say with 100% certainty. And so what do you do in that environment? Yeah, so I think, you know, the the WHO has really not shrouded itself in glory over this whole COVID episode. And, you know, we've tended to think of it to some degree as uh, a victim because of the way the Trump administration tried to abuse it uh, and withdrew the United States from it. Uh, it's in an impossible situation, but it has played its cards very badly. And this is an example of that. And, you know, they have shown a great deal of what you might call regulatory capture by the Chinese. And the proper thing for them to do if they couldn't do a worthwhile investigation under the circumstances was to refuse to do one at all. And the reason for that is not simply to exclude the possibility of a lab leak theory, but also because, as Susan points out, uh, it actually matters how the thing got started. Is this a uh, a wet market thing? You know, is it a you know some other uh, transporting wildlife issue? Is it something else entirely? Uh, you know, and you really do want to find, if you can, patient zero, you do want to do as as serious an investigation of how this ended up in a human population and how it spread as possible. And, you know, these are the things that allow you to contemplate viral eradication and also changes that are going to be necessary to prevent things like this from happening. And if you're an international health organization and you can't function under those circumstances, you do need to ask yourself, is the principal role that we're playing that of, uh, you know, sort of validator for the Chinese Communist Party? And, you know, that is, in fact, the role that the WHO has been sort of dragooned into. And Jake Sullivan, the national security advisor, is not wrong to say, let's take this uh, with some real grain of salt, there's reasons to worry about the integrity of that. And if you're one of the scientists who's operating under such constraints that, you know, governments around the world are going to say, we don't believe in the integrity of the work you're doing, you got to ask yourself whether that's work you should be doing. There's also a really interesting, to my mind, intelligence angle in this story. Uh, on January 15th, so five days before Donald Trump left office, the State Department put up a, a what they called a fact sheet on the origin there, uh, about the coronavirus. And it made some pretty significant claims, one of which was that the Chinese military had for the past 
previous three years been doing experimental research in conjunction with the lab using animals, and also that a number of lab workers got sick in the fall of 2019 with COVID-like symptoms, and this would have been months before the first cases were noted. Lab officials have flatly denied those and just said that's not true. We don't work with the Chinese military. And the report is a little squishier on the sickness thing, but is essentially denying that lab workers got sick. Okay, that document from my own reporting was not just Mike Pompeo firing off a press release. That was actually an interagency, you might even say consensus document on what officials believe they could say. Now, granted, it was coming from the Trump administration. However, the Biden administration has not retracted it, nor have they issued any new statements, nor have they selectively gone back and said, we no longer agree with this point or that point. So it is still the position of the U.S. government and the Biden administration that the Chinese military was conducting research at this laboratory and that lab workers got sick. And so in the absence of retracting that, it seems to me we now have this situation where our government is saying these things happened and people at the lab are saying, no, they didn't. One of them has to be right. And it is kind of reminiscent to me a little bit of Iraq and WMD, although we're not quite going to those stakes yet. We're not going to be invading China based on this intelligence. But, you know, if the Biden administration thought this was no longer accurate, then just retract the statement. But they're not. I mean, I do wonder if one forcing function isn't going to be eventually all this stuff is going to end up in court. There is going to be attempts to honestly, like most likely in insurance disputes in which companies are trying to collect on insurance policies that have, you know, that don't cover, you know, acts of war, that don't cover, uh, you know, uh, nation state activities, right? And sort of like over the classification. And so I wonder if, 18 months from now is the place that we're actually going to see people really trying to fight over these questions and like get any information they can out of the U.S. government, because at an international level, the big question is going to be, so whose fault is this and who pays for all of this? Because ultimately somebody has to. All right, let's go on to object lessons. That's how we pay back our, our listeners. That's what they're here for. Our debt. Yes. Susan, you start. So my object lesson is an article, which is kind of old school. I feel like we haven't used an article object lesson in a while, um, but it is a sort of massive visual investigation that was published in the New York Times. And there was sort of this really cool kind of video component and then also an article. Um, and the title of it is How Illicit Oil is Smuggled into North Korea with China's Help. Um, and essentially what this sort of New York Times investigative team did was really track sort of the movements of the of the ships and um I don't want to spoil it for anyone, right? Sort of how uh, oil is moved around the globe. And the North how, Koreans did it. <laughs> how um, <laughs> sanctions are potentially evaded. Um, and I just thought it was a really, um, uh, like just a really, really fascinating um, sort of illustration of, um, I think sanctions evasion sometimes can seem like pretty technical, pretty dry on paper. And um, this is like a really, really good, rich, just case study. Um, they obviously spent months and months and months, if not sort of years, um, uh, investigating the ship and they have pictures and they have videos. And so it's, it's just, it's a, it's a really interesting read. It's a really cool story. Their, their sort of visual effects team, um, I think did a really good job in, in almost presenting um, kind of what the intelligence might look like if you were presenting, um, you know, sort of you were uh, explaining within the U S government sort of what 
happened. And I think this, you know, this might be a little bit familiar, sort of what are the things you might use to um, to show what happened. And so um, I just would, would commend it to, to readers as being um, just kind of an interesting national security deep dive into an area that I don't, I don't think the public gets a lot of insight to and, and it's just kind of a fun read. You know what would have been hilarious is if the oil tanker were that ship that got stuck in the Suez. Exactly. That, that's the twist at the end. Shane. Wouldn't that be so? Which bad? is my object lesson. Oh. I want. I want to talk about that other ship. We were all viruses for the show, and so far we are all big ships for object lessons. I'm grouchy about the big ship, <laughs> um, and you know everybody was trying to make the big ship into a metaphor for something. And I think this is really silly. Sometimes a big ship is just a big ship. It doesn't stand for anything. It got stuck. That's not like your life under COVID. You know, it's not a good opportunity to talk about the global economy. It's actually a metaphor for only one thing, which is the political situation in Egypt And that is a metaphor that nobody really wanted to talk about. So I just want to say the ship is free now. The people of Egypt are not. Can we please talk about that? Wow. Okay. Ben is not here for your humorous memes. He's not here for your gay ship memes. Those were those were very funny, by the way. A lot of them a lot of them were funny, except that like like this is a tragic country. And like the only time anybody pays attention to what's going on in Egypt is when a ship gets stuck. And then all the jokes are about the ship. I would like to spend some time talking about Egypt. Man, Tammy picked the wrong week to be on vacation. Tammy actually doesn't agree with me about this. She was like, the ship is glorious. She was kind of into the ship. I just not into the ship. Not it. Not have it. I thought it was pretty funny. Riveting. Riveting. And a metaphor for this podcast in life. <laughs> <laughs> uh, my object this week uh, is the cherry blossoms. Aww. It is We are a peak cherry blossom in uh, uh, blooming in Washington, D.C. Um, I actually took my bike down this week and had a nice ride and looked at all of the blossoms, took some pictures. They're mostly around the tidal basin. That's kind of where everyone, if you see pictures of them at this time of year, uh, that's probably where you'll see them. But they are really, I mean, there are cherry trees all over the city and some really great spots and some little hidden gem spots that I love too that I hope to go visit maybe in the next few days. Um, but I don't remember cherry blossom season last year. I, I mean, it must have come right in the thick I of when do we went remember home. there was like too many people at the Tidal Basin and they weren't sure about like outdoor transmission yet. And they kept trying to send people home. Yeah. Like vaguely, I do remember that. Like, I feel like it was the peak was after we all went home, but it just, it is just kind of like, you know, sucked into this void of horrifying, terrible, you know, scary feelings. Uh, And it was just great this week. Like I started biking during the pandemic. So I took my bike. It is an easy ride from my house. It's super quick. And I'm just like drive riding around and realizing like, this is basically my neighborhood. Uh, And it's super cool. It is glorious. And this year they are not doing the cherry blossom parade or festival for sort of obvious reasons. And so apparently there is like a porch parade that people in DC are doing where they're decorating their like sort of yards for the cherry blossom. That's what I saw last weekend. Okay. Mm-hmm. And I kept wondering why, like, everyone in my neighborhood was throwing yes. like a baby girl baby shower because. 
porch petal parade decorations and baby shower decorations. They're the same. Little girl's birthday. It's it's sort of indistinguishable. And so I spent like a good 10 days just being like, what is going on with all of these weird baby showers that are happening? Yeah, I'm glad you answered that question. So it was a porch parade. I knew it was like, my reaction was similar, but it was just like, why is everyone having a cherry blossom party this year? And I was like, I guess just because we just find happiness where we can. So you know what tipped me (laughs) off? One neighbor finally put out a giant cardboard cutout of Kamala Harris and Joe Biden riding a unicorn with a cherry blossom crown. And I was like, I do not think that's a baby shower. Something is happening. And that's the level of subtlety it takes to get into (laughs) my brain. Exactly. And to bring the podcast to a close. That's it for this week, you guys. Rational Security is, of course, a production of Lawfare. You can find our show page at lawfareblog.com. We're giving away um, lots of leftover pink decorations mm-hmm. from our cherry blossom parties at cherryblossomdepot.lawfarespot, right? They can find it yeah. there? Yeah, uh, that's, cor- that's correct. Good. And when they're done there, they should go to thelawfarestore.com to buy lawfare and rational security mugs in which to plant the, the cherry blossoms oh, and, and, you know, get cuttings from them. Or perhaps make a cherry blossom cocktail of some kind. Yeah. I should probably do myself or ask someone to do for me since I have that privilege. Uh, you can find us on Twitter, of course, at RATL Security. Send us your cherry blossom pics. I'll post some of my own. You can find us on Facebook as well. Whenever you download the podcast, please be sure to leave a rating and review. It helps us out and share the podcast with others. Push that little share button. Send it to your friends who you're having porch parties with. The audio engineer this week is the intrepid Zachary Frank from Goat Rodeo. The show is produced and edited by Jen Patia Howell. Uh, music this week by Marjorie Taylor Green and Naomi Wolf, who formed a new honky-tonk duo called Take This Passport and Shove It. Very good. Would they could do that. To that. They also performed uh, the famous... I totally lost my train of thought there. I, <laughs> it was I, so famous. Forgot I, I, had a, I had one. It was on the tip of my tongue. And like that, it's gone. You can tweet it later if you remember it. Yeah. Yeah. And ask Sophia Yan to play it for you. On behalf of my good friends, Ben Wittes and Susan Hennessy, I'm Shane Harris. We'll talk to you next week. Bye-bye. 